Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you might guide our thoughts, and we ask, Lord, that we might experience a life converted, conformed to the image of Christ as a result of our studying your word. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, you see the title of our lesson today, Resting in Jesus. And you would wonder how we're going to get from Joshua to Jesus, and we will see about that. We are going to talk about chapter 11 after our introduction. The war for the control of Canaan was a long, drawn-out conflict. And then the divine edict that God gives, and a decisive verdict in the outcome of the war. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, Causes and Cures, says that uh, Christian people, many Christian people, give the impression of being unhappy. And he was writing in the 1950s and 60s after World War II. He was in England, and he said maybe it was because of the war and the effects and consequences of the war. They're cast down. Their souls are disquieted within them. And that's the reason that he writes the little book here. And he says that people uh, are not interested in Christianity if Christians give the impression of being unhappy. Well, I want to talk about that in just a moment. But first, let's take a look and see what's happening in the 11th chapter of Joshua. Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, Now, what he heard of was the hailstones about the size of Volkswagen falling on the five kings of the Amorites. He sent to Jobab, king of Maidan, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the north of the hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland and on the heights of Dor on the west, and to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with many horses and chariots, very many horses and chariots. So all these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. How do you think they're going to do? Well, we'll find out. It was a long conflict, but we're told in verse 18 about the war there with these kings. And then it says, There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Now, chapter 11 marks the conclusion of united action against the enemy in Canaan. The war is essentially over. Well, what's in the rest of the book of Joshua? Well, it's talking about dividing the lands and the inheritance among the tribes. But with today's action, we've had the central campaign where we hit Jericho and Ai. Then last week, we had the southern campaign. This week, the northern campaign, and the Canaanites are done, so to speak. God stated in Abraham's day that his descendants would possess the land. In Moses' day, 
He again said that the Israelites are going to drive the Canaanites out of Israel. That's the promised land. And now in chapter 11, the goal has been accomplished and Israel is firmly established in the land. We've learned some things in our study. We've learned to trust and obey. We've learned that sin in the camp can cause a lot of problems for everybody, one for all and all for one. We've learned that uh, compromise is a bad thing and brings on a host of troubles, but God can bring blessings out of a curse. And we've been assured, I trust, that God fights for His people and along with His people. As Kevin DeYoung would say, spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. We fight as God fights. So we see God's divine edict. When the Lord says it, you can take it to the bank, so to speak. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, why would He want to do that to the horses? You remember God doesn't want His people to be dependent on the military. They have an army, but they're not going to get all these sophisticated weapons and technological advancements. God told later the kings not to multiply horses because He wanted His people to depend upon Him. So they burned the chariots. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as Great Sidon and Misrephoth, Maim, and the valley of Mizpah on the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung the horses and burned their chariots with fire. Jabin, the king, evidently escaped from the battle. He probably thought if he could just make it to the stronghold in his city that he would be safe. But you see in verses 10 and 11 that he didn't quite make it there. If you're looking in your Bible, the king was slain and the city was destroyed. How long do you think it'll take these Canaanites to figure out that they're fighting against Almighty God. Well, the answer to that is given in verse 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle in order that He might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that He might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They are not going to get it because God has marked them for destruction because of their iniquity. Their cup of iniquity was full. Now we see Joshua took the whole land. Here is the verdict coming, Joshua eleven twenty three. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. That's an important phrase there. The land had rest from war. A little further in the book of Joshua, we see that summarized again, chapter 21. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which He swore to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. 
And the Lord gave them rest round about, according to all that he swore unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. It's over. And now here comes the fruit of obedience to God. Resounding victory over the Canaanites. Complete domination of the enemy armies. And a powerful and predominant presence in the land on the part of Israel. Notice back in chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, that the Anak were the last ones to be cut off and driven out of the hill country in Israel. The Anakim, those were the big guys who had struck fear into the hearts of the spies 40 years before. Now they've been driven out. Matthew Henry reminds us, even that opposition which seems invincible was got over. Never let the sons of Anak be a terror to the Israel of God. That's us, according to the New Testament. We're the Israel of God. For even their day will come to fall. Giants are dwarfs to omnipotence. Yet this struggle with the Anakim was reserved for the latter end of the war. When the Israelites had become more expert in the art of war and it had more experience of the power and goodness of God. Note, if you're above 50... God sometimes reserves the sharpest trials of His people by affliction and temptation for the latter end of their days. Therefore, let not him that girds on the harness boast as if he puts it off. Death, that tremendous son of Anak, is the last enemy that is to be encountered, but it is to be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15.26 Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Well, that means that um, there may be some rough times ahead for an old-timer like myself. But we ought to know how to fight. And we ought to be helping younger ones understand how to fight in the battle. Now, turn over to Judges chapter 1. That's just a few pages over from where we are in Joshua. Maybe a dozen. Judges chapter 1. Now listen to this. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and its villages. 29. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemesh. Verse 34. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country. And they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Heres, in Ijalon, and in Shelbim. Now, Ijalon was that valley where God was throwing the hailstones down, and they had the great victory. What in the world is going on here? We're to the book of Judges, which comes right after Joshua. talks about the death of Joshua. And we're still trying to conquer the Canaanites. I thought Joshua conquered the whole land, we read, and they had rest from war. Listen carefully, because I think if we can fully grasp what's happening here, that's going to give us the answer 
and the reason for the phenomenon of unhappy Christians. God had given the entire land to his people. The Israeli flag, as it were, were, was flying over the central headquarters in Gibeon. They were in control of the land. Now, it was the responsibility of each individual tribe to go in and do the mop-up operation. You see, Joshua didn't kill every single Canaanite person in the whole land. There are still some there, but their power is broken. In chapter 12, you'll see a list of all the kings that were conquered, and there were many, and their armies were destroyed and their chariots burned. The Israelites have to go in and possess their possession. Do you think they'll do it? Well, some did and some didn't, just like today. They had seen war. They knew how to fight. They had seen God fighting for them and alongside them. Now it was time for them to step up, take the responsibility, and conquer their portion of the land for whoever might have been left. I believe we can make an analogy here. And this is going to be important because today we're writing the great victory in chapter 11 of Joshua, but we're going to be sliding downhill to that terrible time of the judges for God's rebellious people when there was no king in the land and every man did right in his own eyes. A very difficult time during the judges. I think we can make an analogy, and this might help us to see what is happening there in Israel, what might be happening with us. We'll see the Old Testament account and then the New Testament analogy. We've said that uh, Joshua, of course, was the leader of the people. His name is Joshua in the Hebrew. In the Greek language, Jesus is the word for Joshua, and he is the man who would be leading us to conquer our enemy. In the Old Testament, God is working through the nation as a channel of redemption. In the New Testament, God is working through the church as a channel of redemption. You remember God told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. But then Christ said to his disciples, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we see, in one sense, the church in the Old Testament, Acts 7, 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, and with the angel which spoke to him on Mount Sinai. Now, there's a lot of controversy about that. Did the church exist in the Old Testament? But that word, uh, God's assembly, uh, that word translated assembly in the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the New Testament, is ecclesia. And ecclesia is the same word that's translated church. Uh, the word in the Hebrew means called out by God, an assembly. And God called his people out of Egypt and carried them on to the promised land. Of course, we see in the New Testament that there is a holy nation there that we read about in 1 Peter 2.9. So there's a close connection between Israel and the church. 
but in the, in the nation of Israel, just like in the church, not everyone was a true believer. We had some true unbelievers and some true believers. The universal church would include all of God's elect from the Old Testament who were called then, today, and in the future. All those who will be called to God's kingdom would comprise the total church. We call it the invisible church. Because here we have meeting the visible church. We can't see people's hearts to know what's happening there, but God can. Some people in the church probably would not yet be Christians, might not ever be Christians, but many would be. Romans 9, verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God had failed, for they are not all Israel who have descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named the child of faith. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. And that would be ourselves. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you, are in, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. Now Joshua was leading the people into the land. That was their inheritance. But we have a different inheritance in the New Testament. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the text, the word places is not there. It's just heavenly. Heavenly places means things pertaining to heaven. Heavenly subjects, heavenly privileges. Think of what we've been given in Christ. Election, predestination, pardon, Peace, redemption, adoption, hope, inheritance, the earnest of the Holy Spirit, and the list goes on and on. That is what God is giving to us here and now. But there's something else that's coming. The new heaven and the new earth. Or if you get to heaven first, Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or 2 Peter 3.13, but in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. If Christ returns, then you may make it to the new heaven and earth before you make it to heaven. Whichever, it's a tremendous inheritance, both now, every spiritual blessing in Christ, and when we get to heaven. But... There it is, every spiritual blessing in Christ, heaven and the new heaven and new earth. But there is an enemy in the land. For Joshua, it would be the Canaanites, code name Amorites, because there were so many Amorites, many times Canaanites were known as the Amorites. For us, the enemy, we've said many times, would be thoughts, ideas, beliefs, impulses, speculations, all of these things that are going on down inside because that's where life comes from, we're told in Scripture. Guard your heart with all diligence 
out of the heart come the issues of life. As a man thinketh in his heart, that's what he is. That's the reason we're told to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Because out of the heart come adulteries and fornications and murders and all those things that we're told about there in Mark chapter 7. Well, Joshua conquered the entire land, we're told, but Christ has conquered the entire universe, including all principalities and powers, including all forces of darkness, including the whole thing. In fact, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And that's our commander today. He has all power. He works alongside us, just like God worked alongside Joshua and the Israelites in the Old Testament. But we saw that some tribes failed to possess their possessions. That's what we will see in the coming days in the study of the end of the book of Joshua. And probably we'll hit that first chapter in Judges because that's important. Well, we would say some Christians fail to personally appropriate the fruit of victory in Christ, resting in Jesus. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, if you're experiencing that rest in Jesus, I would suggest that you're going to be a joyful person. Maybe not just running around with a big grin on your face, but things are going to be right down inside, and there's going to be the joy of your salvation. Joshua gave them rest from war, but we saw they still had to fight. That's the way it is. They didn't have to fight the great armies. They just had to come in and take possession of what was already theirs. Christ has won the victory on the cross. But we have to take possession of every spiritual blessing that He fought and won for us. We have to appropriate that for ourselves. Now, in the New Testament analogy... The rest is resulting from completion and satisfaction. And we say, what in the world is that? Well, we're going to find out what that is because that has a bearing on resting in Jesus. That's what resting in Jesus is all about. In Genesis 1.31 and 2.2, we see God resting from His work of creation. He created everything in six days, as we learned from Judge Brzezlowski several weeks ago. And then God said, it is good. In fact, it is very good. And then on the seventh day, he rested from his creation. Resting in Jesus, what is this all about? Dr. Miles Van Pelt is professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary over in Jackson. He reminds us that, quote, since we are image bearers of God, we imitate His image. We work because God works. In the same way, we rest from our work because God rested from His work. Now, why did He rest from His work? Was God tired? Oh, making all those animals. Oh, man, I'm worn out. I need a break here. Give me a break. 
No, that's not God. Resting what it is not, it is not rest from exhaustion. Now, we may need some rest from exhaustion, I will grant you that, but that's not the resting in Jesus to which we refer. Jesus was continually teaching and preaching and helping and healing and praying sometimes all night long and being hounded everywhere he went by his enemies and traveling around on foot. And yet he was energized. And he went about doing good all the time. And finally one day he said, Hey, let's go over across the Sea of Galilee and get some rest to his disciples. But guess who was waiting when they got over to the other side? The multitudes were there. He didn't get a lot of that kind of rest, but he was indefatigable. And after being at a healing service at Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house until midnight, I suppose, half the town came. He was up early the next morning, a long while before the break of day, out in a solitary place praying. I'm not saying that Christ didn't get tired. Here's what I'm saying. A refreshed spirit will carry a tired body. And I'll tell you how I know that. But that's biblical. A refreshed spirit will carry a tired body. Proverbs eighteen fourteen: The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity. Resting in Jesus doesn't refer to the rest from exhaustion. Maybe you've noticed uh, young gladiators on the gridiron will be playing in a championship game. And they will be expending every ounce of energy that they can possibly muster. And they may be exhausted by the end of the second quarter. And they are certainly exhausted by the end of the fourth quarter when the final buzzer sounds at 11 p.m. But they have won the championship. And now they are ready to celebrate till the break of dawn and not even think about being tired. Well, that's the rest of satisfaction and completion. They completed the season. They won the championship. They accomplished their goal. And now they're going to celebrate. And they'll get some physical rest, but it's that spirit that's carrying them after they left everything out on the field. So it's not rest from exhaustion. Resting in Jesus is not the rest of inactivity. Mark 16:20 and they the disciples went forth and preached everywhere and the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following amen these guys were just like Jesus they had that same spirit down inside and they just kept on rolling to get the job done here's Paul's description of himself and some of the others who were with him 2 Corinthians 6 and verse, uh, verse 4. But as the servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, by the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. That sounds kind of like warfare, doesn't it? The weapons for the right hand for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet are true. 
as unknown, yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything, Paul and his fellow workers knew how to rest in Jesus. But it was not the rest of inactivity. Well, what is it then? We'd like to get in on this, but we got to know what it is and how to get it. It's the rest of completion and satisfaction. And to get in on this rest that Christ offers, you have to be free from some things. You have to be free from fear. You have to be free from doubt. You have to be free from unforgiveness. You have to be free from bitterness. And there might be some other things on the list that would be an obstacle to our arrest. Quoting Dr. Van Pelt again, God earned or achieved rest by finishing His work. Of course, we're told that Jesus was the one through whom everything was made that was made. So we're talking about Jesus here, resting after He created the world. Now, back to uh, the quote. God earned or achieved rest by finishing His work. This rest also expressed God's satisfaction with what He has done, as, had done, as well as the sufficiency of the work completed. God rested because He had completed His work, and His work was very good. Our rest should result from the reasonable and routine completion of the work to which God has called each of us in this life. When we rest, we express satisfaction in our labors and confess His dominion over all of life in and through us. This type of rest protects us from the crippling mania that everything depends on us. It reminds us to trust in God who brings all things to their true and final completion, whether in the larger created order or in the lives of people. End of quote. The Israelites did not complete their work that God had for them to do. So in the book of Judges, nobody has any rest because the Midianites and Philistines and everybody else are always oppressing them because they didn't do their job. How do you attain that rest? Quickly, three things. Resting in Jesus is the rest of assurance of forgiveness. If you know for certain that you are forgiven, that brings rest to your soul. Because nothing can compare with the assurance that I know I will be with Christ in heaven. Anything down here couldn't be as bad as hell. And I'm not in hell today. I'm going to be with Christ in heaven. If I have that insurance. There's no thought given that you have to try harder and harder to merit the merit of Christ somehow. If you could do that. It's impossible. But a lot of religious people are striving to make themselves more pleasing to God because they're not sure that they are forgiven. That means rest that brings a freedom from a works mentality where you're working toward the cross instead of resting in the cross, as Alan Redpath says in his book. When Christ said on the cross, it's finished, that's what he meant. I don't have to do anything to add to it. In fact, there's nothing I can do. All I have to do is ask for forgiveness 
and be willing to forgive. Is that right? Well, check it out. Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that sounds pretty serious. Let's get a little help here from Matthew Henry. Those who have received mercy from God must also show mercy to others. He observed that if you won't forgive, that may be an indication of some deeper problems in your life. And that's serious business. Here's the quote. And if other grace be sincere, yet you be defective greatly in forgiving, you cannot expect the comfort of your pardon, but to have your spirit brought down by some affliction or other to comply with this duty. In other words, if you're not looking if you're not looking to God and doing things His way, then you need to take a careful look at your own heart. See if salvation is intact there. At some point, if it's not, you'll become unhappy. You'll be missing out on the rest that God died to provide because you never quite know where you stand with God. If I'm not forgiving of others, then he says he's not forgiving of me. I'm not sure everything that means, but it means that I better be forgiving of other people. I understand that part. If you're never quite sure where you stand with God, that's one thing. But what if you think you stand pretty good, but you're not in good standing at all? That would be even worse. Resting in Jesus is the rest of victory, His victory, participating with Him in His victory. When Christ died at Calvary, we died there with Him too, in a sense. You can read about that in Romans 6. We've already quoted that verse a couple of weeks ago. And because of His victory over all things, we participate in that victory if we know how. Hebrews 1.3 He's the radiance of His glory. He, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is the rest of Jesus. After He was crucified, made satisfaction for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and that's where He rules today. And we are seated there with Him in heavenly places, the Scripture tells us. Now, the rest of victory in Christ means triumph over circumstances, favorable and unfavorable, people, good and bad, things, things that I have or things that I don't have, and worry. We'd be familiar with this because this relates to the four chapters in the book of Philippians, and we saw that for circumstances... We need to keep a single-minded focus on Christ and see circumstances as an opportunity to promote the kingdom, just like Paul. My circumstances have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. People maintain a servant's heart and have the attitude of Christ toward other people. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Things, use things to lay up treasures in heaven. Other than that, Remember that we count all things to be lost compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, our Savior, the Lord. Worry, learn to be content 
and learn to pray with a grateful spirit. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Very familiar. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's what Alan Redpath has to say. The restful Christian is he who lives his life above the storm with Jesus. Oh, he's sensitive to sorrow and to the troubles of other people, but he is able always to discern the wisdom of God. He's willing to trust the loving heart of God and therefore is able in the conflict to await the unfolding of God's plan. He is able to keep silent while he waits on the Word of God. The Christian who is living there above the toil and traffic of daily life, who is constantly living in touch with the throne, is resting in Jesus. He is also the busiest man of all, going at such a speed you wonder why he doesn't break down. The only answer he can give you is that he has waited on the Lord. He has exchanged his puny strength for the almighty energy of the Holy Spirit. The resting Christian, are you that? I didn't say the lazy Christian. I said the resting Christian. Busy, keen, always at the work of the Master, while deep in his heart is peace that no storm, however unexpected, and no sorrow, however miserable and hard to bear, can ever disturb. Now that's a goal for us. But the closer you get there, the better it is. Well, the one who is resting in Jesus finally has accepted God's grace, he has applied it in his life, and he has surrendered his will to God. He's experiencing the strength and motivation to do things God's way. Every true Christian has received God's grace, but just like the Israelites in Canaan, some have failed to possess their possessions. And often, we fail to avail ourselves of the means of grace, So we have the power, energy, motivation to do the things that we ought to do. The means of grace, prayer, the Bible, preaching, those things. Sometimes we're like the Israelites in the days of Eli, just a little on beyond there in the book of of Judges in 1 Samuel. They went out to fight the Philistines without God's power and blessing. They lost 4,000 men. But then they didn't uh, follow apply application of the means of grace of calling upon God and confessing their sin. Instead, they turned to superstition. And they thought, if we take the Ark of the Covenant, then we'll win the battle. Then the next day, they lost 30,000 men because God doesn't do it that way. You've got to apply the means of grace, which would be confession and coming to Him and recognizing I can't do anything in my own frail strength. I've got to have His power. If I'm operating in the power of the flesh, there's no rest. There's no joy. There's no strength because it's the joy of the Lord that's supposed to be my strength. But the moment that you surrender your will to God and purpose to obey, then your soul will find rest from the war. And it kind of starts right there and it goes on. Do you desire the rest that Christ offers or the hollow and very fragile comfort of the world? It may feel pretty good now, but it may not last. 
resting in Jesus, if that's what you truly want, if you want the rest of peace and assurance and confidence and acceptance and obedience and satisfaction and rest from work that has been completed and well done, then I've got some good news for you, if that's the desire of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these great promises in Scripture. And Lord, we would purpose in our hearts this morning that we do want to do things Your way. We want to be in touch with You. We want to be making application of the means of grace in our lives because we want that power and strength that only You can give. Lord, we know that if we're going to have that grace, we have to be committed to You and we have to commit our lives to You. And I would pray, Lord, as we contemplate that matter that you would speak to our hearts if there's someone here this morning who is not in right standing with you that this might be the time when they would come into a saving knowledge of Christ have sins forgiven and begin resting in Jesus we pray in Christ's name and for his sake amen